Thanks for checking out this episode of the Screen Facts with Jason Davis podcast, where we discuss a movie and share some fun trivia facts during the conversation. Starting next month, we'll be taking a more flexible approach to the podcast. We're going to keep releasing new episodes in the new year. It just won't necessarily be weekly. And by the way, we also will not be releasing a new episode next week in between Christmas and New Year. So enjoy your holidays. Have a happy new year. And thank you so much for all your support. Remember to check every Wednesday for new episodes in the new year. That's when we'll be releasing them. And if you want to get information on how to access all of the past episodes, please visit jasondavisvoice.com slash podcast. Please like us on facebook.com slash screenfacts. Post your comments or questions. You can also tweet me at jasondavisvoice or email screenfacts at yahoo.com. Well, for the last podcast of 2016, I can think of nobody better to co-host it with me than the person that is my most favorite in the world, my lovely wife, Sue. Wow. Thanks, honey. Why do you look so surprised? (laughs) That's so sweet. Well, you know you're my favorite person in the world. Oh, gosh. You're mine, too. The last couple of weeks in December, we've been talking about some sort of funny and cynical Christmas movies. (laughs) So we figured we would end the year on a higher note yeah. by talking about probably the most sentimental Christmas movie ever, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. It's a classic. It is. And it just celebrated its 70th anniversary, released originally December 20th, 1946. Wow. Directed by Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. Story written by Philip Van Doren Stern, and we'll talk about that in a second. Screenplay written by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, Frank Capra, and additional scenes by Joe Swirling. Now, for anyone who's a theater geek like me, mm-hmm. Joe Swirling, that name was so familiar to me and I couldn't think why. And I'm embarrassed that I didn't just remember right off the top of my head because <laughs> anyone who's done Guys and Dolls ah. knows that he was one of the writers involved in that. Very cool. Yeah. There was also some people who did some uncredited work on the script. Okay. Dorothy Parker. Okay. Mark Connolly, Clifford Odets. Okay. And Dalton Trumbo. Oh, the movie was just made about him recently with Brian Cranston. Yes, he was one of the blacklisted writers following the McCarthy hearings. Oh, boy. And I have an interesting note about some of the communist questions that came up. Throw it out the there, go for it. creation of that, this movie. In 1947, mm-hmm. an FBI analyst submitted, without comment, in addition to a running memo on, quote, communist infiltration of the motion picture industry. Recording the opinion of an industry source who said that the film's obvious attempt to discredit bankers, quote, is a common trick used by communists. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the FBI was doing in 1947. Uh, It's good to see that they were wasting time then as they are now. (laughs) Very good. Excellent. Some things never change, I guess. That's right. So you actually found a copy of the original story. I did. That this movie is based yeah. on. Philip Van Doren Stern wrote a short story called The Greatest Gift. Right. He wrote it in 1939. Okay. He couldn't get the story published. So he decided to make it into a Christmas card. Ah. And he mailed it to 200 of his closest family and friends. And he did that in 1943. Okay. So that came to the attention of RKO producer David Hempstead, who showed it to Cary Grant's Hollywood agent. Oh, wow. And in April 44, RKO bought the rights to the story. So RKO actually created three separate scripts or parts of scripts to make a story out of the short story. Mm-hmm. And they weren't happy with it and they shelved it and Cary Grant moved on and he did Bishop's Wife. RKO said to Frank Capri that you should read it. And he didn't. He loved it. So Arkeo sold the rights to Capra's production company and threw in the three scripts just for just for free. 
And at that point, they took everything they had. They took the short story, the three scripts, the, you know, all the different collaborations, and they turned it into the script that it became. Okay. Yeah. And you actually read the the short story. I did. It was really cool. I found it online. I still don't even know how, and I managed to... (laughs) You know, me and my my, my crazy research. Uh-huh. It's not long at all. It takes around maybe five, ten minutes to read, depending on, you know, what kind of pace you want to use. It starts with George at the bridge. and Which is very interesting. Yeah, because when we were watching it the other night, when he got there, I said, this is where the short story started. <laughs> and you were like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And it's interesting that you say that because I was thinking as we were watching the movie. Now, all right, I have to make a confession here. In addition to... Watching the movie for the podcast, I maybe have seen It's a Wonderful Life from start to finish one other time. And I know that's weird because it's on TV every year, Mm -hmm, a million mm -hmm. times and everything else. The movie runs two hours and ten minutes. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is a great movie, but that probably wasn't really necessary in order to move the story along and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think there might have been a couple of things in this movie that if they cut it out, the pacing might have been a little bit better. And I felt like the best part of this movie and what really makes this a classic is that last 20 or 30 minutes of the movie when George is contemplating suicide. (laughs) There's a lot of exposition in the beginning of the film and toward the middle that may or may not be necessary for the overall message that they're trying to convey, is what I'm trying to say. Interesting. See, I'm going to disagree with you there, Hanny. Okay. I like the fact that they show his life Mm -hmm. in such detail, significant events and otherwise, because it really shows you what kind of person he is. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying cut it out completely, maybe just shorten the exposition a little bit. You know what I mean? Maybe. Like you can have all of the stuff of him as a kid, you know, stopping Mr. Gower from poisoning the people, Mm -hmm. the story about how he rescued his brother from drowning in the ice. And that's why he's deaf in the ear. I mean, all that stuff is important. Yeah, it's very important. How he meets Mary Mm -hmm. and courts her and everything else. Mm -hmm. But maybe just the way they did it, maybe they could have just tightened that up a little bit or something. I'm not sure exactly how. I felt like the movie moves a little bit slowly until you get to the part where he wishes that he was never born. And then it's like, wow, this is amazing, you know? (laughs) See, I I find that very interesting because I get sucked in from the very beginning and I love every minute of it. Okay. And I love the fact that they show all the different things. And one thing I really noticed in this viewing was the fact that pretty much all the main characters, you know, George, Mary, Violet, mm-hmm. Harry, Sam, Bert, Ernie, and Marty, Mary's brother, they all grew up together. Okay. So I noticed that because I had actually, you know, found a source that said, oh, check out this or look at that. And right from the beginning with it, where the boys are sledding, mm-hmm. they're all wearing a cap mm-hmm. and it has this really ominous looking skull and crossbones on it and I, <laughs> that I never noticed before. Yeah, it's interesting. And it said, you know, it's probably they're all in a club. Okay. You know, and this is their club hat. And it says, Marty, it's your turn. Now Sam goes down. Hee-haw. You know, and then just as I'm like realizing that, like, oh, that's Sam. That's hee-haw. Right. Like he's right through the whole movie. They all grew up together. Right. Sam was the only one, I think, who really broke out. Right, who became this huge success. I mean, it's huge financial success. They're all successful in their own way, obviously. Right, right. I thought it was really cool. I was noticing the scenes of the kids all together. Right. To the drugstore. They all come in. All the boys have like, you know, they're they're out playing baseball and none of their uniforms match, but they're on some kind of a team, it right. looks like. And Violet and Mary are right there from the beginning. They both like George. Yeah. Well, they're, they're also setting up that it's a small town yeah. where everybody's kind of, there's a, a sense of community and mm-hmm. family yeah. and everything else. So I get it. And, and again, 
I get why this movie is a classic, and it strikes all the right chords for not only a holiday movie, but a movie about knowing what's important in life Mm -hmm. and the importance of love and family and all that kind of stuff. I get it. All I'm saying is I felt like the pacing of the movie is definitely slower leading up to the last 20 or 30 minutes when he meets Clarence. That's all I'm saying. That's true. That is true. It is a little slower. And I enjoy that slow pace. Okay. Fair enough. So we should talk about the stars. Well, yes. So everybody knows the movie stars James Stewart. Now I'm saying James Stewart because I read that he did not like being called Jimmy Stewart. Interesting. So James Stewart, Donna Reed, and Lionel Barrymore are the main stars in terms of names. Right. Obviously, there's uh, other actors that play important characters in the movie. Mm -hmm. Lionel Barrymore is Drew Barrymore's great uncle, if you're wondering. He was cast as Potter because he played Scrooge for many years in radio broadcasts of A Christmas Carol. And so they felt like it was really a natural fit for him to become this Scrooge-like character in this movie. Yeah, that was cool. He also worked with Capra in 1938 on You Can't Take It With You. Aha. And of course, James Stewart worked with Capra a couple of times either before and or after this movie, Mm -hmm. including Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mm -hmm. And another interesting fact about Lionel Barrymore that I read, which I thought was pretty cool, he invented the boom microphone. That's crazy. I never knew that. On a movie set, a boom microphone is on a pole, and it's held right above the actors during the performance in a movie to capture the sound on set. It's obviously out of frame, unless it's a really (laughs) low-budget movie. (laughs) Every once in a while, every (laughs) once in a while, it it creeps into some movies. You catch a boom there. You probably could do a Google search for how many movies have a boom visible. Oh, yeah, that could be fun. And of course, you don't want that, but <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a pretty important invention for movie making. That's so really it's pretty cool. cool. Hey, did you know that Vincent Price was also considered for Potter? Yes. He's one of uh, yeah. a, a number of actors, but probably the only one that we've heard yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. I read through the whole long list of names and went, oh, oh Vincent Price. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> really cool. Yeah, so this movie was not a huge box office success. No, um, no. The budget was estimated at $3.1 million, domestic gross of $7.2 million. This is another one of those movies that, for some reason, didn't resonate with audiences in the theaters and even got kind of passed over during Oscar time. It did. Because there were some other movies that came out around the same time that just captured everybody's attention more. Yeah. And then it's funny how, thanks to television, mm-hmm. it's a classic. It was a clerical error with the copyright company. In 1974, there was a clerical error in renewing the copyright. So all of a sudden it was free range. Wow. And the TV stations just snatched it up and started playing it. Yeah, anybody who had a copy of it, yeah. they said, oh, we can play this as much as we want. We don't have to pay anybody. Yeah. You yeah. imagine that poor clerk is like, oh, what did I do? Yeah, somebody got their ass handed to yeah, them for sure. basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned Cary Grant before. Mm-hmm. So originally, the original scripts were written with really him in mind. Okay. But it wasn't until they actually brought James Stewart in that they really created the part of George Moore for Stewart to play. Okay. And Donna Reed actually wasn't the first choice for Mary either. She's wonderful in the movie. She's wonderful. It was her first big movie. Mm -hmm. It was her first big thing. I thought she was terrific. Yep. But the first choice, Ginger Rogers. Oh, wow. She was offered it, but she turned it down. She said it was too bland. Very interesting. (laughs) In her autobiography, she questioned her decision and said, you know, foolish, you say? I could see her playing the part, too, though, because she was really good at that yeah. sassy, strong female. Sure. Yeah. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. Yeah. they say, right? I mean, when you see the script for this movie, the Mary part is not showy, per se. No. No, but she's got a lot of spunk. Yeah. 
right from the beginning when they're in the drugstore mm-hmm. and he's leaning over to scoop the ice cream for her and she says, is this your bad ear? George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. <laughs> it's like, I love this girl. I know. I know you're you're all into all of that sentimentality. I get it. It's, yeah. it's cute. Yeah. The first scene in the movie that makes me cry, because there's quite a few, when I'm jumping ahead and it's a spoiler right. alert, but on their wedding night. Spoiler they... alert. <laughs> I'm the only schmuck who hasn't seen this movie a million times, probably. <laughs> uh, it's their wedding night and they embrace. He kisses her and they embrace and she says over his shoulder, that night we threw the rock, you know, at the windows of this house. This is what I wished for. Aww. Oh, Mary. Yeah. Love her. In 2006, the movie was ranked as the number one most inspirational movie of all time Mm -hmm. by the American Film Institute. A year later, AFI ranked this as the number 20 greatest movie of all time. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Of all time. Of all times. Yep. James Stewart's performance as George Bailey is ranked number eight on Premiere Magazine's 100 Greatest Performances of All Time. One of those, I'm not sure, I read that they actually put 500 movies out. Oh, for wow. the survey. Okay. And then took a hundred. Okay. And then went from there. Okay. So saying number eight out of a hundred, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really good. Eight out of five hundred, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. Listen, I'm not gonna argue. The performances are great. Yeah. James yeah. Stewart is is oh, so engaging. I mean he's yeah. amazing. Yep. No question. Um the woman who played his mother, mm-hmm. Beulah Bondi, she actually played his mother five times, I think, in different movies and TV shows. And I thought they had a really nice chemistry. Yeah, they were really good. Yeah. She um, was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, too. Okay. James Stewart almost didn't want to even do this movie, which is very interesting. Yeah. Well, he was back from the war, and Mm -hmm. he wasn't doing so good. Yeah, Lionel Barrymore convinced him to take the role. Yeah. He was feeling, I think, maybe a little cynical after the war. Well, let me tell you something. That article I read at ShopRite today, honey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See, this is me like uh, making lemonade out of out of lemons, right? Because right? there yeah. we are, you know, online. It's the Sunday before Christmas, mm-hmm. and it's crowded, and you know, there's lines, and we're getting ready to check out, and we have to wait a minute before we can even unload groceries. And I look, and I see magazine with James Stewart on the cover and it says James Stewart after World War II and how It's a Wonderful Life saved him. And I'm like, right. I have to read this while I'm here. <laughs> they said he was very emotionally fragile after the war. I'm sure. Nowadays, we might say he had PTSD. Yeah. And he really wasn't sure if he was up for it, which made the dark scenes for George so amazing. When he's in the bar mm-hmm. and crying, when he comes home and, you know, he trashes the stuff on the table, mm-hmm. he really got to release the inner demons there. was a form of, of catharsis. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, listen, World War II probably mm-hmm. took its toll on a lot of people. And like you said, mm-hmm. back then, PTSD, it didn't have a name. Yeah. I'm sure PTSD has existed as long as wars have existed. Exactly. And plus, so. back then, they didn't talk about it. Yeah. You know, my dad, my uncle fighting in World War II, they never talked about it. Yeah, because people who are civilians who haven't been trained in combat and how to engage the enemy and all that, they can't relate to what it's like to be in a battle or or pull a gun on somebody or whatever. Yeah. I mean, eventually. Or even worse, kill somebody. I know. You know? Eventually, my dad opened up and had some, you know, know, some of the fun stories he told us. Right. Of course, he spared us the details. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's fun stories of camaraderie and and things like that. But there's an expression, war is hell for a reason. Exactly. Right. I have another little interesting tidbit about one of the cast members. I just want to say this really quick. We were talking about what this movie meant to James Stewart in his career. So he had like about a 60 year career in films, Mm -hmm. five Oscar nominations, one win. Mm -hmm. He called this movie his favorite of all the things he ever did in his career. And that's saying something because that's a hell of a career. Yeah. Frank Capra 
who is a renowned director, also named this movie as his favorite of all of his mm-hmm. films. So this is a movie that meant a lot to the people involved in it. Yeah. The part itself is amazing. He plays him from graduating high school and yeah, should be like, starting college right. all the way up to father of four losing it. Mm-hmm. And then plus knowing that he struggled emotionally through it right. must have been such a challenge every day. And mm-hmm. to be able to work through it, yeah, that's something that's going to that's, that's it's gonna stay with experience. you. Absolutely. Yeah. So what did you have about uh, the other characters? In the oh, movie? yeah. Sheldon Leonard, mm-hmm. who was Nick the bartender. Not quite as big of a deal for him, this movie, apparently. <laughs> the only reason he agreed to play Nick was so that he would have money to buy Dodgers baseball tickets. <laughs> I'm sure uh, in retrospect, he probably looked back and went, hey, that was a pretty good gig for me. <laughs> yeah, not bad. <laughs> and wasn't there wasn't there something cool about the dog that you read, too? Oh, yeah. The Baileys had a dog. Yeah. I never really paid much attention to it. You pointed the dog out to me when we were watching the movie. Yeah, it's really easy to miss the dog because so... he's kind of in the background yeah. and he sort of blends in with the background yeah, because the film's, a black, and the film's black and white. Yeah. He was a French sheepdog. Okay. And uh, his name was Shag. Okay. So the first time you see him, he's running with young George and his friends in downtown Bedford. Then you see him right behind Ma Bailey when she calls the boys to dinner, Mm -hmm. you know, the night of the dance and he's got the pies and everything. Right. And then when the boys pick her up and carry her in and put her on their dad's lap, the dog's barking. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, there's the dog. Sure, the dog's excited. You know, but the dog kept barking. Right. Because dogs. Right. Dogs don't know to shut up when the, the scene, you know. The actors know, okay, now let's bring it in and continue the scene. Right. The dog kept barking. And if you look, you can see James Stewart kind of turn over his left shoulder. It just looks like he slips out of character for a split second and he goes, shut up. <laughs> And then you have one last viewing of the dog, George and Mary. Right. When they're going off on their honeymoon, the dog's running behind them on the stairs. Yeah. Aw. It's so cute. You gotta love dogs. Yeah. So another thing that's cool about this movie is that it invented something kind of revolutionary that's been used in movies ever since. What's that? Well, films made prior to this used cornflakes that were painted white to create a falling snow effect. Oh my gosh. How would you paint cornflakes? I don't know. Pour paint over them? I, I'm not sure. But <laughs> but cornflakes were really loud, obviously, yeah. when they're falling on a set. So they had to do redo the dialogue every crunch, time. Crunch, 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 crunch. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, when they're falling. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not oh, yeah. Out. Yeah, yeah. So dialogue had to be dubbed in later. And they do that still in movies when the boom mic yeah. doesn't catch the audio quite as right, good as it right. could. They do the ADR sessions afterwards yeah. in post-production. But Frank Capra wanted to record the sound live, so they invented a new snow effect using fomite, which is a firefighting chemical, with soap and water. The mixture was pumped at high pressure through a wind machine to create the silent falling snow. 6,000 gallons of the new snow were used in the film. And the RKO effects department received a Class Three Scientific or Technical Award from the Motion Picture Academy for the development of the new film Snow, which is used to this very day. Super cool. Very cool. But you know what's, what's cool? We were watching the movie, <laughs> and we were commenting on how real the snow yeah. was and how amazing it is. Yeah. And it wasn't even filmed in the winter. Yeah. The iconic scene yeah. where George is running down the street in Bedford Falls, Merry Christmas, Merry- Bedford! Falls. And he's like, oh, this you old building alone. Yeah, exactly. That's filmed in the middle of July. Yeah. And people were like passing out from the heat. It yep. was so hot. Yep. Like 90, 90 degrees, degrees or something. Right, right. It's um, amazing. Capra actually had to give them all a day off yeah. during filming just so they could kind of recuperate. 
Yeah. And there I mean, they are in their suits and coats and hats and scarves. It's really believable that it's winter. I it mean, really you, is. you really can't tell at yeah. all. It's incredible. Yep. It's very cool. The set for Bedford Falls was constructed in two months and was one of the longest sets that had ever been made for an American movie. It covered four acres of RKO's Encino Ranch and included 75 stores and buildings, a main street, a factory district, and a large residential and slum area. Mm-hmm. Main Street was 300 yards long, three whole city blocks. That's right. They planted 20 full-grown oak trees. Wow. On the existing sets. That's so cool. And plus, they built a full working bank set. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know and the, the house. attention to detail. And, yeah. It's fantastic. So cool. And I think a movie that pays homage to this is definitely Gremlins. We mm-hmm. were talking about all the uh, Christmas movies yeah, that yeah. are not necessarily known as Christmas mm-hmm. movies. Die Hard, Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Gremlins is another one of those. And you were arguing, oh, it's not really a Christmas movie. The whole movie. I watch it again. The whole movie starts with Hoyt Axton, Billy's father, buying him the Mogwai for Christmas. For Christmas, right. Oh, and, that's, right and then, right. of course, everything happens. But the town is Kingston Falls in that movie. Right. And it looks a lot like Bedford Falls. So Interesting. I think that that was definitely a, a homage to this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, Seneca Falls, New York, claims that Frank Capra visited them in mm-hmm. 1945, and he modeled Bedford Falls after it. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be the combination of a couple of towns, Seneca yeah. Falls and Bedford, hence Bedford Falls. Well, I would like to one day go to Seneca Falls in December because they have festivals every year. It's a Wonderful Life Festival. That's pretty cool. That would be cool. They have a Hotel Clarence, and in 2010, they opened the It's a Wonderful Life Museum. And Carolyn Grimes, who played Zuzu, cut the ribbon. Very cool. So I would like to go up there. I think that would be yeah. fun. So there's there's a lot of really cool notes about the filming of this movie. Mm-hmm. Details on the sets. For example, a mm-hmm. photograph of James Stewart at the age of six months, donated by his parents, is in the Bailey home set, mm-hmm. which I think is very cool. In the drugstore. Mm-hmm. It's Gower's Drugstore. Mm -hmm. Did you know where that name came from? Nope. Well, Capra's employer, Columbia Pictures, was on Gower Street for many years. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they had a lot of true-to-fact advertisements in the drugstore, too. Okay. I didn't get all of them, but I read that there was Coca-Cola. Okay. Lucky Strike cigarettes, actually tons of cigarettes. Peterson tobacco pipes, Camel cigarettes, Chesterfield cigarettes. Vaseline hair tonic, Pepto-Bismol, <laughs> Saturday Evening Post. So cool. The famous ad in the drugstore is the the sweet Caporal cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And it had the sign that says, ask dad, he knows. Yeah. And that's when he, when, you know, he doesn't know what to do he about the poison. He doesn't know what to do about the poison. So what does he do? He sees the sign. He's like, oh, ask dad, he knows. <laughs> Yeah, and that scene, by the way, where he gets slapped by Mr. Gower, Mm -hmm. according to Robert J. Anderson, H.B. Warner really was drunk during the scene in which Mr. Gower slaps young George. Warner's slaps were real and caused real blood to come from Anderson's ear. Yeah. After the scene was finished, Warner hugged and comforted Anderson. So they really got into it. Yeah. It's pretty amazing how you can be kind of transported in a scene and you and you just kind of maybe lose yourself yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and that was that looked painful. Yeah. You know, I mean he got him full on with yeah. the hand and then you can see the blood and yep. apparently it's real. Yeah. And Bobby Anderson so good. Yeah. Young George just as yeah. you know he's, he's a good match for he's James got Stewart. That spark yep. that George has. You know, and I looked him up and um he had done a few films before this. Okay. Did a few after, but then, you know, as an adult he worked behind the scenes. Okay. And a lot of, you know, young actors go on to very successful careers behind the camera. Mm-hmm. So that's very yeah. cool that he was able to do that. Yeah. The scene where George prays in the bar, mm-hmm. James Stewart has said that he was so overcome that he began to sob right then and there. 
And Frank Capra thought it was so amazing that he reframed the shot so you could kind of see James Stewart closer in the shot. Okay, like, like he's zoomed in more? Yeah, like he's cropped in, sort of. Oh, cropped, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he wanted to really catch the expression yeah, on yeah. James Stewart's face. That's why if you watch the movie, that kind of appears a little bit grainier than some of the rest of the movie. Yeah. So it's pretty neat. And that's when you, I started really looking at James Stewart going, the range yeah. that he had. And then when he's home and the kids, you know, are getting ready for Christmas and he sits on the chair and a couple of them are climbing on his lap Mm -hmm. and just his, so his face, you know, and he's got the huge under eye circles and Mm -hmm. he looks just older than his years. Yeah. And I'm looking at it thinking, this is the same guy who looked so adorable in that varsity uniform going, Buffalo gals, why don't you come out tonight? (laughs) I mean, he looks 20 years older. Well, you got to think. People who are stressed out nowadays have different ways that they can relieve that stress and maybe not feel it quite as much. But mm-hmm. back then, you know, the depression, mm-hmm. he's he's in a job that he doesn't want to do. Yeah, he's he never had left dreams. town. All he wanted to do was leave town. Yeah, he had all these dreams of building things and yeah. becoming this big success. Yeah. And he's passed up opportunities and this and that. Mm-hmm. He's got this big family and that's all weighing on him. And, yeah. and they did a great job of showing that. Yeah. Probably with some makeup, but also his performance. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. So there's a really cool accident that happens on the set that they kept in with Uncle Billy. Oh, that's right. I love the scene where he's leaving the celebration and he's drunk Mm -hmm. and it sounds as if he stumbles into some trash cans on the Mm -hmm. sidewalk. Yeah. But in reality, a crew member dropped a large tray of props. (laughs) Right after to actor Thomas Mitchell went off screen, Mitchell quickly improvised, oh, I'm all right, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> and director Frank Capra decided to use this take in the final cut, and he gave the crew member a $10 bonus for improving the sound. P.S. $10 in 1947 or 1946, that's probably not bad. Decent. Yeah, yeah that's like a Christmas bonus, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> So we were talking about Donna Reed earlier and how she wasn't the original choice to play Mary, but she really brought some skills to the role that they probably didn't even anticipate. That's true. For the scene that required her to throw a rock into the window of the Granville house, Mm -hmm. Frank Capra hired a marksman to shoot it out for her on cue. But Donna Reed surprised everyone when she broke the window without the assistance of the hired marksman. That's pretty cool. Well, she had played baseball in high school and she had a strong throwing arm. Ah. (laughs) Yeah, she came from a small town. She was from Denison, Iowa. Mm -hmm. And she also demonstrated some skills there by winning an impromptu bet with Lionel Barrymore when he challenged her to milk a cow on set. (laughs) I chuckle because I think about actors' resumes. Has their name in the middle and the top, then has height, weight, you know, hair color this that Mm -hmm. lists of parts training at the bottom is special skills right and imagine what she could put right yeah i can throw baseball better than most guys yeah milk a cow and (laughs) throw baseball yeah and back then they probably said oh she throws like a girl oh don't get me started i know i know yeah that means she does it just as well but gets 77 cents on the dollar for it (laughs) there you go with that again so george uh i mentioned of course george had all these hopes and dreams he wanted to learn how to build things and all that yeah turns out james stewart in real life majored in architecture at Princeton University. Jersey. Which uh, which is interesting for our, our good friend Eric Reitz, who's a, a regular contributor to the show, because not only does he live down near Princeton, mm-hmm. but he's an architect. That's true. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Very cool. 42 rings are heard over the course of the film. So, of course, if Clarence got it right, <laughs> 42 <laughs> angels receive their wings 
Clarence's voice is heard in the opening scenes, but he doesn't appear until the last 30 minutes of the film, which we mentioned earlier. And he's on screen for only 15 minutes. That's funny. And it's funny because that happens more often than you realize in these classic movies. These iconic characters that are so important to the story. Mm -hmm. Another one that comes to mind has nothing to do with this movie, but Star Wars. The original Star Wars. Darth Vader, I think, is only in the original Star Wars. We talked about it on the podcast for, like, what is it, seven or 15 minutes? Something like that, In the entire movie, but they're so impactful that it feels like they're in much more of the film. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The kiss scene. The kiss scene, yes. Famous. The famous. You can see the yearning and the longing <laughs> in his face. Oh, my gosh. What? Now, I wanted... You're talking about the scene where he's on the phone. They're on the phone with, mm-hmm, uh, with the first um, kiss. Sam, right? Yeah, yeah. And Capra really strove to make scenes as real mm-hmm. as he could for the actors. So they set up uh, Stuart and Reed with the phone mm-hmm. on their part of the set. And they had the actor who played Sam on a different set. Okay. So they could actually have the conversation. So he, they were really talking to him on a phone then. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was dubbed in and this and that. But James Stewart was very nervous about the phone scene kiss because it was his first screen kiss since his return to Hollywood after the war. Wow. Stewart filmed the scene in only one unrehearsed take. Wow. And it worked so well. Part of the embrace was actually cut because it was too passionate for the censors. <laughs> it was too racy for 1946. Yes. That's yes. something. Well, maybe it's just me because I'm a female and I'm looking at James Stewart in that scene going, <gasps> but the way, <laughs> first of all, his nose is near her hair. Hmm. And that's a classic thing when the man smells the woman's hair and you start to see like a little little tingling in the man there. He's like yearning a little for a little more smell, a little closer. And then, you know, she's <laughs> listening and he's just he's, he's just right there. And like I watch that scene every time going, kiss her, kiss her, just do it. Kiss her, kiss her, kiss her. Wait a minute. I need a minute. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then when they finally, oh. And the kiss yeah. itself isn't even that long. It's yeah. a kiss. And well, then, it's cut, you said, right? And then they embrace. Oh, okay, okay. You know, and the embrace and, oh. Yeah. It's powerful stuff. Oh, it is. And I could see why the censors, especially if they were female, might have been going, mm, I don't know about that. A much different time, you yeah. know? You think about it now and it's it's almost comical in a way how conservative people thought back then. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's something about the, the yearning and the wanting to get there. Yeah. In that scene, the build up. Yeah, because he almost kisses her boom. when they're singing the Buffalo Gal song. Yeah. Yeah. And she twirls away. Yeah. I also would like to say that as someone who loves butterflies, mm-hmm. <laughs> when I read about the framed butterfly collection on set, I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to look for that. And but it's kind of sad, though, because they're all dead butterflies. I, I know, but that's what they did back then. And that's how you preserve the, the glory of the... That's true. The butterfly. Yeah, I mean, I guess all they butterflies are going to die. like a couple weeks. That's true. And it's not like they killed them to put them in a frame. Either. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll assume. We're going to, yeah, we're going to go with we're gonna the go with that, that no butterflies were harmed in the making of this movie. Yeah, for the making of this yeah, movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you see them in Ma and Pa Bailey's dining room. Because mm-hmm. I went, oh, oh, look at the butterflies. Look at the butterflies. Yeah. And then later on, you see them in George and Mary's living room. Mm-hmm. So George must have inherited them. Yes. Ah, uh, very nice touch. Very yeah. nice touch. A lot of attention to detail. Yeah, yep. We talked about the fact that Potter offers George a job. Yes. And it's $20,000 annual salary. Right. Did you happen to look up what um, that would be today? I found out that in 2010. Okay. Which, you know, that's seven years ago already. Yeah. Almost. It would have been 
$310,567 a year. Wow. And that's seven years ago. So I don't know if it would be up a little bit more from then, maybe. Probably. So, yeah. So the $20,000 that he's... Yeah. You yeah, know, well, you kind of understand why. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that scene because he's on board somewhat. Mm-hmm. He's sitting there in that little chair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and That's a got... total power play too yeah, by Potter. Yeah. And he's got, you know, the cigar and he's thinking about, well, let me talk to my wife. And it's not until he shakes Potter's hand. Yeah. And he sees the liver spots can... on his hand. Yeah. And the look of <laughs> disgust on Stuart's face. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then he wipes like, his hand on his jacket. He's like, no, I don't know. I can answer you right now. Or, yeah, like he's like he's shaking hands with the devil himself. Yeah, right? and it's like he's wiping slime off of his hand. Yeah. But $20,000 yeah. back then, right? Yeah, that was a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So what else you got? I love the theme of the movie. And of course, the part that gets me full out sobbing, probably for like five minutes until I can calm myself down again, is Harry Bailey making the toast at the end. Yeah. You know, because you realize Harry's a big war hero, but he wouldn't have been there to save that transport if George hadn't saved him when they were kids. Right. Let me just stop you for one second. If you're not crying, choked up, feeling some sort of emotion at the end of this movie, check your pulse. Absolutely. Honestly. Absolutely. You're, you're I'm a, a heartless person. Come, but yeah. you know what? Come on. The brother comes home. They, he raises a glass and he says, to my brother George, the richest man in town. Yeah, and it's just the idea, it's all about how great humanity can be mm-hmm. when we allow it to be. Yep. And if even that a, doesn't get you, yeah. come on. Even a guy like Sam Wainwright, yep. he's in Europe at this point. Right. And all the money that they've collected in the hamper mm-hmm. looks seems like this is close. If that's not 8000 you know, who knows? Oh, I'm sure it's it's probably more than enough. To, you to, know, but you then know, Sam need. wires in. 25 you know, grand. You know. Which, going back to what we just said, exactly. is, is like 300 some odd thousand dollars. And it doesn't even phase him. And that happened because Mary told a few people. Mm-hmm. She specifically went to Mr. Gower, who wired Sam. And it's just all these people that have yep. been affected by him. And Sam, their whole lives, has actually been teasing George. Yep. Old moss back George. Yeah. You know? Well, because he tried to offer him, you know, getting in on plastics. Yeah. Yeah. And which is where he is makes like, his fortune. I don't want any plastics, you right. know. And then when the martinis are setting up their house, mm-hmm. when they're moving in and Sam pulls in and he's even going, oh, look, you know, there's George always making a speech. Like he's always got a little <laughs> dig. And I can't help but think that even though Sam is very material success, that mm-hmm. he's kind of a little jealous of George. All of the years that he put in at the building and mm-hmm. loan made it possible for people to have homes and not be living in a slum that was owned by Potter. Exactly. And that alone, you can't even put a price on that. Yeah. George finds the book at the end, the Tom Sawyer, and Clarence has written in there, uh, no man is a failure who has friends. Right. And I noticed on the set of the Bailey Building and Loan, there was a picture of his dad. Mm -hmm. And then under it was like a framed, I don't know if it was like a cross stitch or something, maybe embroidery. And it said, all that you can take with you is that which you've given away. Yep. I just think that sums up the movie so well. Yeah. There's so many ways that you can help people. And it doesn't have to be money either, by the way. Right. Just be nice to people. It's amazing how just being nice can really make a difference in, in somebody's day. And I'm not trying to be a preacher here. Treat people like they're as important as you think you are. And the world will be a better place. Period. The end. 
Well, honey, thank you as always for being a part of the podcast. I love doing this with you. And thanks to you for listening. Uh, Again, no podcast next week. And then in 2017, just keep checking every Wednesday. I don't know how often we're going to be doing these things. I don't want to put any kind of time limit or any kind of specific thing on it at all. I just want it to be when we can do it, when we can get the schedules to jive and get people in here to record with me. We'll make it happen. But uh, we really appreciate you listening, and I hope that the fact that it's not going to be weekly won't deter you from still listening. Remember, we always like to hear from you. If you have comments or questions, favorite scenes you want to mention, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash screenfacts. You can also email us, screenfacts at yahoo.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Davis Voice. Please rate and subscribe on iTunes. And if you want to show your support for the show in other ways, you can order ScreenFacts merchandise on the podcast page of jasondavisvoice.com. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Show theme music by audionautics.com. And special thanks to our announcer, Kim McKay from kimsvoice.com. ScreenFacts with Jason Davis is a production of Jason Davis VoiceOver. Visit jasondavisvoice.com if you need a voice for a commercial, narration, promo, internet video, e-learning or training program, and more. Click on the podcast page to get information about where you can download and listen to past episodes. Listen again next Wednesday for a new episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis.